0: Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious, I'm Barry Vogel. In 1995, James A. Getty, who appears in public as President Abraham Lincoln, visited Ukiah, California and dropped in at the studios of Radio Curious. In talking with him as President Lincoln about President Lincoln's life, the events of his time, and his presidency our conversation turned to the economics of the mid-19th century. We talked about many topics of his time, and I began by asking Mr. Lincoln to give us his opinion about the effect that Eli Whitney's invention of the cotton gin had on
1: the spread of slavery. Uh, Perhaps a... That wouldn't have happened if Mr. Whitney had not come up with that idea of the cotton gin, but perhaps then somebody else would have. But it gave a renewed interest to slave labor in the South, which I think might have been going out earlier had it not been for Mr. Whitney. But King Cotton in the South was their economics, agriculture. As we talked about it moving out into the West, um, I thought, how could free labor compete with slave labor, and I thought that that kind of thing would deprive the West of a very glorious future if we let that form of slavery spread out. Well,
0: Mr. Lincoln, you uh, grew up in uh, southern Indiana, and that wasn't a cotton territory, and it was just across the river from a slave territory in Kentucky, wasn't it?
1: It was, and... uh, Fortunately, uh, during my administration, uh, even though that border state had slaves and raised cotton and tobacco, certainly, uh, they did stay loyal to the Union. But many people, you know, told me, why would you be worried about uh, slavery moving into those Northwest Territories and the Kansas-Nebraska Act and outcome of that? Because the climate is not fit for raising cotton. Why were you worried? Because Mr. Toombs of Georgia said to his people, you don't have to raise cotton out there. You can have your labor force applied to things that will grow, wheat, oats, corn. So it was a matter of, uh, of moving a form of slave labor uh, into an area where I thought it would extend slavery for another hundred years. If we could have kept it where it was, it was on its way to extinction, I do believe. So that's why I resisted it.
0: Well, why would it have been on its way to extinction in the South at that time, merely if it was restricted to the cotton as a crop, as opposed to corn or wheat as a crop that it could be
1: in the central Midwest? They based everything on cotton and rice and tobacco, and especially cotton and tobacco were burning the nutrients out of the ground. They weren't fertilizing, so each year the crop was getting less and less. So there would be less need for that type of a labor force, that was my thought. Another 40 years down the road, uh, and of course we had had slavery for 250 years before I became the president. It was introduced to us in 1619 and had spread all up and down the East Coast, but by the time of the writing of the Constitution, it only existed below the Mason-Dixon line.
0: Maybe we should talk more about the the fundamental human rights issue and and the social issue uh, and your
1: perspectives uh, on that. I thought it was one thing for a man to own a horse, but it was something totally askew for a man to own an individual. And it looked to me like the Founding Fathers knew that, both in the Declaration and the Constitution. Yet in the Constitution, when the population was set up
0: and determining the number of representatives for each of the states, they counted black
1: people as only three-fifths. Three-fifths, but that let the Southerners have more representation to determine their congressmen coming out of the South. So they always had many, many people in the Congress drawing from those black people who never had a vote in the first place but they allowed that to happen but they never mentioned the word slavery in the Constitution. I think that our founding fathers were embarrassed by it and in years to come, knowing that it would probably be gone. And they've set it uh, the year of 1808 as the end of the slave trade or that you couldn't traffic slaves in after 1808. So I think it was an uncomfortable thing. They, The fathers, the founding fathers, dealt with it in the best way they could. But I think they, too, felt it was on the way to extinction.
0: Yet, are we drawing a line between the people who lived in the South, uh, the slave owners, and the people who lived in the North, such as yourself, who uh, felt slavery was not correct, and perhaps even another line um, uh, that would separate the ardent
1: abolitionists. You know, I had no use for those. Oh, I, uh, t- tell me well, why. Well, I had a good friend by the name of Elijah Lovejoy, came from Connecticut out to Illinois, and he was a printer by trade. He went down to Alton near the Mississippi and uh, started a printing press, ran abolitionist newspaper-style things. And here were these people in the lower third of Illinois and Indiana who had migrated there from Kentucky and Tennessee. They had relatives at home who were, were slave owners. So they were upset over his publications. They broke into his shop one night, took his printing press, and threw it in the Mississippi River. He made more money and bought another one started printing the same stuff and they they killed him so to me abolitionists was a radical type of thing and even when the republican party was born and they took the abolitionists in in 1854 as a part of the republican party i didn't join until 1856 pretty much because the abolitionists were there i think when john brown pulled his raid at harper's ferry in 1859 it was fuel for the fire for southerners jeff davis and others would say that's those republicans And John Brown, an abolitionist, a part of that party. But I tried to distance myself from him. And I tried to always preach to the people that that was not the the route to go. I hated it probably as bad as they did, but I wanted to handle it through the courts and the Congress, not in the streets. A number of um, months ago, I was talking uh, with your predecessor,
0: Thomas Jefferson, And uh, he was indicating that uh, slaves were better off uh, under the system of slavery, because he felt that they could not really take care of themselves if they were to have been set free, such as uh, you did with the Emancipation Proclamation. Do you feel that, that that's valid?
1: I admired Mr. Jefferson. He he warned us. So he said, "Slavery is a fire bell tolling in the night." He he could see the writing on the wall. I do believe, but he knew there was going to come the time, as I did, when that change would bring about great hardships. How can a society? make an overnight change uh, where people had been dependent and now we're going to be free, but it had to come. And I said, if the tug has to come, it's better that it comes while I'm there. So I, I knew there were going to be hard times, but I thought it was better to get it done once the opportunity presented itself. I admired Jefferson. Uh, I certainly thought what he did in Louisiana, the boldness of mm-hmm. jumping in in 1803. But he had a philosophy that... Uh, that uh, about slaves, as you just indicated, Southern ministers thought that uh, mm-hmm. they're a second-class people, but we've got to get them ready for the hereafter. So that's why they were in their church services, segregated as they were. Mm-hmm. But I really felt that uh, that uh, it had no place in the country. Had to have a change come, and uh, I would not, uh, I would not say, as Jefferson said, that uh, that to keep a people dependent upon somebody else, that, that certainly is a form of slavery, and it, uh, uh, it, it had to come to an end. What plans uh, to integrate black people
0: into society did, did you have um, after the Emancipation Proclamation
1: that you weren't able to carry out because of your untimely death? Well, I think that <laughs> we talked about education. We talked about opportunity. We had never stopped uh, uh, the immigration Uh, during the Civil War years. People from Europe were immigrating. We were opening up wide areas of the West. We started the Transcontinental Railroads. There would be job opportunities. Cyrus McCormick... Uh, John Deere had a variety of implements. Now the revolutionary, of, the revolution of the industrial age was upon us, so both black and white people in the South would need to be trained for new jobs. Education was going to be in the utmost of my thoughts, and of course the Congress talked, you know, about uh, the forty acres and a mule, and I don't know if that would come about. I knew sharecropping was talked about, where the black man would jump in and work with perhaps a former master, but he would have an interest personally in that. So there were a variety of Things that were were being discussed, but we thought that uh, education was going to be so important to train both black and white people for new jobs. Industry would move into the south. Were there plans or programs that you were proposing
0: or or thought to propose to the Congress at that time? Uh, uh, the, uh, under the Reconstruction Act, that that actually took place um, uh,
1: under the under the reign of, of your successor, uh, Mr. Andrew Johnson. Johnson. I think Andy knew my plans pretty well for Reconstruction, but he was up against that terrible, radical wing of the Republican Party who wanted the South punished. I would have been fighting them the same way. But I really think that 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 resistance, uh, I don't know if it could have been resolved within four years. We had to have um, uh, military governorship in the South to look after both races for their protection. But uh, these plans uh, that were in, um, I... I really thought that there would be a natural Western expansion of the black man and that he would move his family there to get a new start. Uh, These were some of the opportunities I wanted. You know that I talked about the vote for the black man. This was astounding to some of my people in the Congress of my same party. They weren't uh, willing to listen to the black man having the vote. So all of these things would have to come about, but uh, the resistance uh, would have been great from Capitol Hill how about the
0: vote for the women was that an issue that that was brought out uh during your presidency and your prior experience but when i
1: was in congress in 1847 48 49 that's when up at seneca falls uh, in new york susan b anthony and elizabeth caddy stanton were right. meeting with these women and saying now look our husbands are abolitionists they're fighting for the black man's rights and yet we can't vote we have no rights in property settlement but you know Years before that, in 1832, when I ran the first time for the Illinois General Assembly, I put out a handbill and I said, if you elect me, these will be my top ten items that I want to have to work on. Number 1 is that we will as a state legislature try to get better financial aid to our schools so we can attract better teachers to come out from the west and, or the east and teach our children. Right. And I said number 2, I am in favor of all sharing the vote who bear their burden of taxes and that includes women. So I think even though I lost that election, I might have been a little ahead of my time in my thinking right there, but then it was put on the back burner.
0: By who? By whom? Who, who put it on the black? Well, it black was burden.
1: it was just not really thinkable at that time. Uh, it uh, we had no time to deal with it in in the Congress when I was president, and nobody had taken it up on any national issue or really state issue uh, prior or between 1832 and my election. Interesting enough, New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts were letting the black man though have the vote in their state, mm-hmm. but not the women. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that was? What, what was
0: going on in America during that time that that uh, the line was drawn, as you explain?
1: I have always thought we just took our early rules and laws from Great Britain, and because it wasn't happening there, we assumed that it shouldn't happen here, and nobody really was willing to spearhead it on at, at a national mm-hmm. level. Um, I, I would think that was why it was. Mm-hmm.
0: What was your uh, feeling about uh, the leaders of the Underground Railroad, uh, Harriet Tubman, for example?
1: I admired Miss Tubman. I never got to meet her. I met Sojourner Truth, and of course you know that uh, my good friend uh, uh, Douglas... Uh, uh, Stephen Douglas, Ste- the no, senator. Was, no, the, yeah. the, the, uh, Mr., Mr., uh, Mr. Douglas, who had escaped slavery and would oh, live up. Frederick, Douglas, Frederick yes. Was, he'd live in Rochester, New York, and would visit me at the White House frequently, tell me about the black man's plight, encourage me to use black troops. But uh, I, I appreciated uh, their going around and talking throughout the country in the North about, about the, uh, the unfairness of slavery, and I think they did an awful lot for that. But um, I never, I've never met Harriet Tubman, but I certainly heard of her. She was quite a, a heroine, I do believe. But uh, the Underground Railroad, when it was really effective in those 10 years before I became president, my formulative thinking was you had to keep the country together. And while I would be sympathetic to the Underground Railroad, I think if I was to encourage it, it might have brought about a situation where in downtown Detroit, two slave owners would have tracked down their runaway slaves, and uh, somebody would want to defend them, and there might be street fighting there that would embellish into the Civil War. So I tried not to add fuel to the fire by openly speaking in favor of the Underground Railroad. There's no, nothing that I ever said uh, that I believe that encouraged it, but yet in my heart, I would have supported it. Mr. Lincoln, I want to take a moment and tell our listeners that they're
0: listening to Radio Curious. And my guest this week is the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. And my name is Barry Vogel. The Dred Scott decision had a lot to do with keeping black people as property. And when you give the example of a slave owner coming to Detroit and and finding Their property, Mm -hmm. as defined by the Supreme Court, might have
1: caused a problem. What was your reaction to the Supreme Court's uh, Dred Scott decision? The lengthy time that Dred Scott was taken from St. Louis up to Illinois and then Wisconsin, uh, uh, it was beyond any reasonable time to have a man kept in slavery by his master while he traveled in those states. So when Dred Scott uh, appealed for... uh, uh, justice. He was told he couldn't have it because he was not a white man. He didn't have any rights. He was a, a, a black man, and this was just totally out of uh, my concept. So I thought that it, 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 it really said the Missouri Compromise is not going to be effective anymore. You can take slaves anywhere. And tied in with Stephen Douglas's Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, it would have totally turned the things around. So I said to my people in Illinois, two things— We've got to resist it, but I don't want to go to the streets and fight it because nothing merits mob violence. But there'll be some day when we can get the Supreme Court make up change and get a different reading. I didn't know what was to happen in mm-hmm. the meantime. But I did think that uh, that we should approach it calmly. But we had to resist it because I said, if this is the case, theoretically enough slave owners could move into Illinois and we go to bed some night, a free state, and wake up the next morning being a slave state. So. Well, when you say
0: that uh, Dred Scott was
1: taken to the northern states for longer than what was a reasonable time... At one time, the free states of Indiana and Illinois, uh, knowing that southern slave owners owned land there, they allowed them to bring their slave labor into those states for the maximum of three months to harvest and, and whatever they needed to do. But then they had to retrace and go back. Now I believe that by the time Dred Scott that three months had even been put aside and it just wasn't to be done so the the three months was more or less what you felt to be a reasonable time and i thought maybe he could get away with it for that but more than three months i didn't Mm -hmm. so yes i was and i was totally against that
0: Although slavery was one of the major issues of of your time uh, as president and and the years leading up to it, what were some of the other factors that that were going on? Uh, For instance, the Whig Party. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about that in books, but uh, uh, there is no Whig Party in the United States now.
1: No, but they were born in 1832 uh, in opposition to uh, President Jackson especially with his economic plans, I believe. Uh, the Whig platform had a uh, no expansion of slavery plank. They had a high protective tariff to keep European goods from flooding our markets. At this early time of our development, our young industries needed that protection. And we thought a national banking plan would be good. Uh, That people who were ambitious but without money, if the federal government, instead of keeping their money in vaults drawing no interest in Washington, could put that out, disperse it among national banks, they could be getting an interest on it, and men could go to those banks and maybe get a favorable 6% loan and get started. In business. But without that, they would have to be at the mercy of a wealthy man who might say, well, I'll loan you the money, but I really want 12% interest, and that would just discourage the the deal to begin with. So that was really the inception of the national banks uh, yes. and the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve as we see it now. Mm-hmm. President mm-hmm. Jackson had done away with it after the first national bank. So we would come along, and actually in my administration, we would get some of those things settled under Mr. Chase, uh, former governor of of, uh, of Ohio, who would become my secretary of the treasury. And he worked very well with another man from Ohio, General Sherman's brother, John Sherman, with the banking. And we started the greenbacks, the forerunner of the $1 bill. Uh, so these things were high on my interest list as far as uh, finance were concerned. And one of the <coughs> issues...
0: Uh, where you had a, a great deal of influence, was acquiring what we now call
1: Alaska. Well, Bill was working on that. Seward had talked to uh, uh, Mr. Stokel, the, the minister from Russia, knowing that that land was available. And they wanted six cents an acre for it. The Russians did. The Russians wanted that for Alaska. And, you see, I had to start the first income tax to pay for the cost of the war. And the American public was not going to buy Alaska. They didn't want to spend that money. Now, Bill would be held over into the Johnson administration, and I Mm -hmm. think he got it for three cents an acre, but it was quite a Mm -hmm. battle, I guess. Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, I, I think,
0: and I'd like to hear from you, that was very different about America when you were president, was the relationship of the average citizen to the nation's president. Uh, could people come calling on you at the White House?
1: I reckon they could. Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, my door was open. The line would form outside. Could be a, a list of, of uh, almost any person you'd expect to see along the street. It could be a dignitary. It could be a, a commoner from out in uh, the St. Louis area who wanted to come talk to me about being appointed postmaster out there. Without any prior appointment. That's generally the case. They took their chances, uh, but uh, they, they, they could form right up and, and the line would be there. Well, Mr. Lincoln,
0: I, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. And I always like to conclude my questions by asking my guest if you could recommend an
1: interesting book for the listeners to read. Well, Mr. Vogel, I, I think that a book that I, uh, I like so much, uh, I think the... Uh, Mr. Stephen Oates, uh, professor of history at the uh, University of Massachusetts. Um, his book, With Malice Toward None, uh, gives a fine uh, concept of my life, well, well researched and uh, um, very, very readable. I like that book. James
0: A. Getty, I'd like to welcome you to Radio <laughs> Curious in uh, your role as Abraham Lincoln.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to see your city
0: and to be in, uh, in California how is it that you um took up this uh, is it a pastime or now it's your your well vocation?
1: i i came to it uh from a teaching career uh i was teaching in ohio and teaching choral music in in 1970 i grew a beard and people started coming about the look that got me into research of lincoln just mm-hmm. as a whim and i knew holbrook was doing mark twain right so uh i thought well maybe i could create something and uh it developed slowly, uh, uh, and uh, in 1978, my wife and I moved to Gettysburg and started our own little theater. So that's mm-hmm. where we've been ever since. How has this experience uh, affected your life? It's turned me more into a, an interest in political and world affairs. I find I'm I'm much more tuned into the uh, to the issues of the day. Uh, where as a musician, I was so involved and absorbed in. Uh, in study of score and, and uh, in mm-hmm. conducting and that type of thing that I, 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 I find myself with different interests now, of mm-hmm. course. I understand you travel extensively
0: around the mm-hmm. United States. Yes. And one of the things that um, always interests me, and I, I like to learn from people who travel as, as you do, is what you consider or find the sense of the United States to be now. Um, we, we saw the election last November... Uh, we see a lot of reaction. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know if we see leadership out there. What do you see?
1: I think that people in general are becoming more interested in what their government is doing, both at the state and national level. I uh, Maybe because I personally wasn't involved some years ago like that, I think that uh, that many of our people probably were not. And now there's this resurgence to, uh, to make this kind of government work. And uh, I, I, I hope that's the case. I, I think it's good for all of us. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, as you were saying a, a few minutes ago, um, uh, the average person could come see President Lincoln between uh, yeah. 9 and 11, five days a week. <laughs> a little different now? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a different access. Uh, oh, sure. I, uh, mm-hmm. I think that in some ways people feel that they are disenfranchised. Or maybe never have been enfranchised.
1: Well I I see what you're saying and I, I would I would presume that that that, that could be a popular uh, feeling among our people. But yet I think through uh, the type of government, I think they have access to the, their representatives through their offices, their senators. Uh, you have now this great thing called the television, or telephone and fax machines that we never had, so mm-hmm. there can be instant com- communication with those offices. So I think that the people can voice their concerns maybe better than having to ride a half day to uh, a country in a buggy or on a horseback to, to mm-hmm. maybe express that mm-hmm. concern. Um, you
0: talk to a lot of schools.
1: A lot of schools, lot all of, age yeah. levels.
0: Is there a theme among the the students that uh, stands out?
1: Uh, I I usually bracket it by ages. I uh, I see things in the elementary school that are more concerned with Lincoln's. Uh, Education and his family. I see where we've been today in the middle school. More political issues being talked about in military, and that intensifies at the high school level. I speak to colleges, uh, uh, and you, your question answer with colleges give and take uh, can cover such a wide gamut of things, international affairs, which of course Lincoln uh, was mostly trying to keep other people out of our our war. They they, they didn't have the global aspect. He tried to protect young industry by the high tariff and tried to keep Great Britain and France out of our war. Maybe they would have come in on the side of, of the South uh, and get a, an IOU to, to get back in the country if the South had been successful. So <clears throat> most things have certainly changed, but maybe uh, you can express an attitude to, uh, of Lincoln that would uh, reflect something to your, to your audience in that question and mm-hmm. answer series.
0: Mm-hmm. And again, my final question, uh, that about books that you might recommend either about Abraham Lincoln or some other topic. That well, I think the,
1: the Stephen Oates book, of Malice Toward None, heads the list. Uh, uh, there have been so many things. Mark Neely has written so many fine things when he was at Lincoln Life Insurance Company in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, uh, certainly, uh, Gabor Borat at Gettysburg College. Uh, These people have uh, a wealth of information out there, and I know that I'm slighting many by not naming others, but Mm -hmm. uh, there is a wealth of Lincoln material. Jim McCracken, or Jim McPherson, out uh, at, uh, I forget if it's at Rutgers or Princeton, but he has been marvelous in in, uh, what he has put on the line about the Civil War and uh, socioeconomic issues of the day.
0: Well, James A. Getty, once again, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious.
1: Thank you very much.
0: James A. Getty appears in public as President Abraham Lincoln. This interview was recorded in the spring of 1995. The book that both Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Getty recommended is Malice Towards None by Stephen Oates. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. They're also available in CD format for $10 each. At Radio Curious, we appreciate your thoughts and ideas about our programming and enjoy hearing from you. Our address is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H. California, 95482. Our email address is curious at radiocurious.org. You've been listening to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.